Welcome to Data Futures, a series about how technology is shaping our lives and what we need to do about it. Data Futures comes to you from the Media Futures Hub at the University of New South Wales and is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bejigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Dr. Michael Richardson, your host for this episode and a senior research fellow in the School of the Arts and Media. This is the second of four podcasts offering key insights from the Data Futures Symposium, held at the University of New South Wales on 30 September 2019. This episode takes up a different yet equally important aspect of data and data futures, infrastructures. Infrastructures are the backbone of data systems, whether in community media, oceanography or military operations. From orbital satellites and sprawling server farms to ad hoc networks and smart home sensors, infrastructures are essential to generating, analysing and utilising data. Drawing on perspectives and practices from across the study of media and culture, the panellists aim to generate discussion and debate about the future of data infrastructures. Opening the discussion is Professor Holly Cruz, the Chair of Communications at Rogers State University. Holly will talk about gender and place in the development of communication infrastructure. Next up is Dr. Jonathan Hutchison from the University of Sydney on unseen infrastructures and imaginary levers for solving automated media systems. Then you'll hear from me, Michael Richardson from the Media Futures Hub at UNSW on the role of data infrastructures in witnessing drone warfare. Next is Tom Sear, a cybersecurity expert from UNSW Canberra with a dystopian story about the future of cybersecurity, data, and infrastructural sovereignties. After that comes Simon Taylor from UNSW on ocean sensors and visualization techniques at the National Computational Infrastructure. Last, but certainly not least, we have Vanessa Paik from the University of Sydney. Vanessa leaves us on a hopeful note, discussing community as a new data paradigm. If that all sounds like a lot of names to keep track of, don't worry. We have a chair who'll guide you through the session. I'll now hand over to her, Professor Heather Horst from the University of Sydney's Sociotech Futures Lab, who chaired this session of the symposium. Today's panel is going to be a series of provocations. So we'll have a series of provocations about six to seven minutes each. So with that, I'll turn it over to Holly. So what I was originally going to do, I didn't know what I was actually originally going to do, but I'm under contract to write a basic upper level undergraduate book on gender and technology. So I thought, great, I will just talk about some of that stuff and throw in the future. Many of uh, those of you who know me may know me from the pneumatic tubes, which I studied and wrote about, I know Edgar, uh, as a communication technology. And you know, then also I said, oh, there's a connection between this uh, discussion of drones that we have these days, as delivery drones, and the way that in the early 20th century there were utopian notions that all of our homes would be connected to pneumatic tubes and uh, goods uh, and meals. This was in Berlin in 1930. Just one apartment uh, would just come flying into our homes through the tubes. So that was great. And then they thought, oh, what are other kind of past delivery systems that are somewhat gendered? I won't get into that. I thought the automat, that's where I'm going to go next, right? A food delivery system. Oh, and then thinking about the pneumatic tubes in uh, something I wrote about is in hospitals where they're still quite common used to uh, transport tissue samples from, say, operating rooms to labs to get information. And I thought, great, that's data, that's our data, that's our tissue, our tissue is data, we are infrastructure, right? So, and part of the tubes, so, uh, and so then I did further historical research uh, at the Iowa Women's Archives uh, at the University of Iowa and I thought for the historical element of my book, as a, some of you are familiar with the work of James Carey, uh, as a student of his, former student of his, I thought 
Of course, transportation technologies are communication technologies. So uh, let's look at the history of women in the automobile and maybe alternative histories of women in the early automobile. And so I was going through oral histories, letters, papers, and uh, I found this excellent excerpt from the oral history of Nellie Bishop of Walker, Iowa. Um, her father decided to buy a car in 1909. Only three other families from the church had cars, the Sowers, Schumanns, and Kletzes. Her mother was crying all day for fear the townspeople would think her family was uppity for having a new car. After they bought the car, her mother never drove it, but let Mrs. Sower drive it. So she was quite the, I guess, she had her own car. And look, how have, um, like, the car as the, the, the road, the street, transportation, as a data infrastructure, kind of a horrific image, I guess timing with Mark's keynote, and look, he's at a stoplight, and uh, you're being surveilled smartly, you're getting digital advertising, there's a public address system, which seems alarming. Okay, so then I went back to, look, women in tractors, because it's Iowa, uh, and this is from like 1910. Uh, and then, as a student of James Carey and following in the tradition of Carolyn Marvin, I thought, also, electricity is gendered infrastructure, and how do we take that into the smart home in the future? One thing I learned is that I do infrastructure studies, which I only learned. So my friend uh, tweeted this to me, where I hadn't really thought about infrastructure as a difficult, problematic term, so I had kind of a simplistic answer. Uh, material backbone of communication systems, which I'm pretty sure I typed this propped up in bed with no like so outside sources. So while I was in the Iowa Women's Archives, the curator gave me a couple of boxes to look at of uncatalogued, unindexed papers by a computer scientist named Margaret Schlosser Wu, who got her doctorate at the University of Iowa in 19. 77, but before that worked on the UNIVAC, was a group leader, uh, programmer, all this kind of stuff in the late 50s and 60s, wrote a book in the early 1980s uh, on computers and programming, has other books that she wrote, so really a pioneering, basically unknown computer programmer. In those boxes, Unbeknownst, it seemed like, to anyone at the University of Iowa Library, there, were, there was a two files of notes that Margaret Schlosser Wu had written while she was, before or after she was um, institutionalized for bipolar disorder. And this made, got me thinking about gender and infrastructure and data in different ways, uh, and including I highlighted just some key things here because it's pretty unreadable. Uh, meeting with a, her psychiatrist, I screamed back, I'm not in a depression, I eat and I sleep. And then later, I had come with a successful slashing and wanted admiration. She cut herself a lot. She detailed in typed notes uh, her progression of her mental illness. I slash my hand and give myself a superficial cut I cut my hand somewhat deeper. Today is Greg's birthday, and I give him a birthday party, but I finally ask Sam to help. Seems like a confluence of lot, a lot of things having to do with emotional labor, gender, uh, and still part of a data system. She wrote when she was institutionalized, again, so she talks about walking rounds and where the doctor came and talked to her, it was so painful that I added numbers in my head. So, one place I ended up was Donna Haraway, though do we reduce this to just, I haven't even talked about her discussion of different medication levels, Margaret Slusher was on, and the alteration of them and the experience of them that they had. I think certainly the first quote from Cyborg Manifesto is, uh, is a stepping off point for me. The second, I'm not so sure about. And then two nights ago, I discussed with Terry Stamps some ideas <laughs> where she said what came out for her were the terms break 
which I see a lot, and, she, and intelligence, which actually showed up in her notes in terms of uh, data infrastructure, systems, and our connections to them. And that's it. <laughs> the next person I would like to invite up is my colleague Jonathan Hutchinson from the University of Sydney, who will be talking about different kinds of data infrastructures. <laughs> Pleased to be here. Thanks for everyone for organising today's events as well. It was fantastic. Please don't send me an email about the program for the next seven <laughs> minutes or so. So are levers really imaginary or just unseen when it comes to automated media? In Ted Stryfus's 2015 article, he highlights that the work of culture has been increasingly delegated to computational processes. And he says, the sorting, classifying, and hierarchizing of people, places, objects, and ideas. The inherent condition of Stryfus's argument here is that items processed by automated calculations based on algorithms are somewhat untouchable. And when combined with culture, they may ultimately provide a new discourse through an algorithmic culture. By positioning algorithms firmly within the cultural studies field, Stryfus further notes, today, it is not culture per se that is a principle of authority, but increasingly the algorithms to which are delegated the task of driving out entropy. So has cultural production been moved from our control, or has its processes become more efficient? How might efficiency systems within algorithmic culture incorporate concepts like serendipity or diversity? Diversity is increasingly of concern for news and journalism researchers, but where does this occur for culture and who or what is controlling this diversity? This becomes a digital intermediation problem, primarily a black box argument that I'd like, like, like to try and reframe today if possible. It is in fact a call for a guiding institution to assist its citizens uh, on how to work through what I'm framing as, a digi as digital intermediation to reveal digital media that's not only important but also relative. The deep mediatization effects highlighted by Andreas Hepp through the combination of media technologies. Hepnote's mediatization is the far-reaching entanglement of media technologies with other everyday practices of our social world. And that incorporates the different perspective of the actors. So I want to build on Hep's work here to explore the more contemporary processes of digital intermediation that includes the apparent non-transparent or indeed unseen infrastructures of our digital media ecology that cannot easily be adjusted by, or refined by end users and often online content creators. So digital intermediation is a combination of, rel of relatively new or perhaps redesigned actors within our contemporary media ecology for cultural production. Technologies, digital media agencies, and automation. Within the process of digital intermediation, the agency of users can be further restricted by those human and non-human digital intermediaries that create, publish, and distribute content. Digital intermediation technologies move and distribute or promote and inhibit content for users. These technologies include social media platforms that promote some content over others, connected devices, for example, smart TVs that are purchased with pre-installed applications that are often unable to be uninstalled, and interoperable systems such as databases, with key examples being something like the Australian My Health Record uh, or the Chinese social credit system. Digital intermediation agencies are those creative agencies that are located between content producers and platforms, micro-platforms. An example of micro-platforms include multi-channel networks, which make up part of what Cunningham and Craig describe as social media entertainment. SMEs built upon the technological, networking and commercial affordances of multiple rapid, rapidly scaling and near frictionless global social media platforms, for example, YouTube, Facebook, Snapchat and Twitch, as they say. Finally, digital intermediation automation highlights our media consumption that's curated and designed by algor algorithmically calculated decisions, recommendation systems on media applications and platforms. While this can be seen as a useful mechanism to sort, curate and present a digestible media diet within a media-saturated market, it also contributes to a decrease in diversification of our exposure to information, these societal black, black boxes, as Pasquale argues. 
It's the evolving media ecosystem that's created the, this digital intermediation moment. We're arguing it's a black box that makes certain outcomes occur may not be entirely relevant. It's the absence of levers that make it incredibly difficult for user agency to play any kind of role in cultural production, distribution, and consumption. But it's also remiss to place the emphasis on the user, uh, on user agency alone. Public service media becomes an ideal institution to undertake the role of providing their users the opportunity to understand how algorith algorithmic media operates and that their users should take a more proactive approach towards its implementation. They are charged with being a public institution that has a remit to educate, inform and entertain. As a public service media enterprise, they also have an information innovation purpose to continue to develop a new and interesting way to engage audiences and deliver news and information. But how can public service media teach users about their options with, within a digital intermediation society? In a pre-recommended uh, system, uh, pre system era of Spotify, Earache Records released this interface for fans who weren't sure what they wanted to listen to. In its simplest form, users can dial in more of one specific metal genre to suit their needs or mood. Here we see the user taking some control of the processing mechanisms of the background of content distribution without any knowledge of algorithms, mathematics, or user experience interface design. They can simply add more or take less of whatever is, is available. So what might this actually look like for public service media then? So Bodo and others have started thinking about what algorithms might mean for public service broadcasters. They're constructing a model which builds on other thinking by Hilda Vanderbilt uh, and Halvard Moe, Jan Schmidt and Yannick Sorensen, uh, and earlier public media scholars like Karol Yakubovich. While they aren't thinking about interface design and how the user can actually personalise their public media per se, they do provide this really useful insight. Public service media have charters that oblige them to educate, inform and sustain social cohesion in an ongoing challenge for public service media uh, is interpreting their mission in the light of contemporary societal and technological, uh, technological context. They say that they have particular goals of profitability, loyalty, trust and social cohesion. So digital intermediation, while a problematic concept driven by social, cultural, cultural, economic and most recently black boxing, also provides unique opportunities and with a bit of creativity can help to address the issues of less visibility for more important and critical issues within black box societies. So my pro final provocation for this panel, can we improve our social cohesion by revealing the imaginary levers within automated media systems? Uh, and can we solve these problems of algorithmic culture, by example, winding up the trust fader and potentially winding down the profit profitability fader? Thanks. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Um, next up is uh, Michael Richardson, and Michael will be talking a bit about drones. Thank you. I have no slides, so I will paint, I will paint with words. Um, on a deserted stretch of road outside Kandahar, a convoy of vehicles slows to a halt and figures spill out, clumping and milling. On the screen at a quiet airbase outside Las Vegas, engines and bodies glow white against the grey landscape rendered by the ther thermal sensor of a loitering predator drone. At encrypted data centers, this video and its accompanying metadata is logged, recorded and held for future analysis, potentially, along with that of countless other missions. Later, after the missile strikes, after the torn bodies are identified as women and children, the event will be mediated even further, circulating as the report of an official investigation, journalistic stories, artworks, scholarly critique. In all of this, who or what bears witness? The pilot or their commanders? The victims and survivors, their communities? Me, an academic researcher located on very different colonised lands, sifting through reports and transcripts? Or artificial intelligences combing through video rendered as code? Or the drone itself, its complex network of sensors, processes and practices? Now these, I think, are vital questions Witnessing has always been inseparable from making meaning that matters ethically and politically, of producing responsibility and demanding justice. Witnessing war matters in particular 
Whether we think of the trials of war criminals, the poetry of soldiers, or the photographs and videos transmitted via print and broadcast media that have helped turn the tide of public opinion against wars in Vietnam, Iraq, and elsewhere. But drone warfare presents particular challenges. Its victims are largely invisible to the eyes of Western publics, operations are cloaked in secrecy, and the dense cloud of promises of precision targeting, of all-seeing surveillance, of legal monitoring and carefully defined rules of engagement, all those promises obscure the brutalities of the system. Even though drone warfare is hard to witness though, it also enables new forms of witnessing, particularly for the pilots, sensor operators and other participants in the war itself. Now this term drone can be applied to a host of technologies. And for me, this ambivalence and ambiguity is part of what makes drones so, so fascinating and such a loaded and important contemporary figure of culture, politics and war. Um, Mark, for example, has, has talked about drone logic as something that's found in, quote, the deployment of ubiquitous, always-on networked sensors for the purposes of automated data collection, processing and response. So part of what was in, present in his talk today. Um, but today I want to focus on the militarised drone, the unmanned aerial system used for combat or surveillance by over 100 countries around the world. Now, uh, Karen Kath Kaplan, Anthony McCosker and many, many others um, have recognised that uh, we need to think of drones as complex assemblages composed of people, objects, terrain, discourses, atmospheres, signals, data and relations between all of those things as well. So in this sense, the drone is not a singular technology, but a complex, contingent, and remarkably diverse assemblage of the human and the non. Among, among other things, they depend on networked infrastructures, wireless signals, high-speed computers, navigation instruments, and the transmission of huge quantities of data. Data is so central, in fact, that we might say that drone infrastructures are data infrastructures. The fundamental technological challenge of drone warfare in a certain sense is actually not keeping the birds aloft, but keeping the signal flowing. Now most American drone operations are flown out of domestic bases. The most famous is just outside Las Vegas. But the infrastructure spreads across the globe. Launch sites might be in Pakistan, Djibouti or the Seychelles, while signals uh, information flows through Germany and even through Australia, um, often via or orbital satellites. Vision for the drone operators, lags as enormous data packets bounce across huge distances. And the scale of data here is mind-boggling. In 2009, the Pentagon was looking at hundreds of terabytes of data per day, um, or more than all the total data collected by the Library of Congress per day coming in through drone systems. Uh, in the decade since, not only have drones proliferated and missions multiplied, but the technology at hand has sharpened and intensified. Um, so the Agus IS Wide Area Persistent Surveillance System has a 1.8 billion pixel camera with a resolution of six inches and the capacity to capture 100 square kilometres at once in an image. Now this is like what they say. Um, uh, so operating at full capacity, it produces a petabyte, which is a million gigabytes of data per minute. And yet the transmission of all that data is just one part of the problem. Storage and processing are the others. Processing that data, combing through it for threats, tracking particular individuals or vehicles, identifying changes in infrastructure or the built environment is only possible um, with machine learning systems. And this is where uh, Google got into hot water recently. Um, its project Maven was about developing systems for doing exactly that. I'm interested in what, we, what we're to make of militarised algorithms that examine or potentially examine impossibly, impossible quantities of data and then recommend acts of killing on the basis of what it sees. This side of drone warfare, perhaps even more than the remote hardware itself, brings us to the brink of autonomous warfare, of pulling the human from the loop of the decision to kill. But I want to bring this back to the question of the witness because drone warfare forces us to confront the limits of witnessing as a human act. Too much of how meaning comes to matter, how it is produced and how it needs to figure politically in efforts towards justice is cut off if we think of the drone simply as an intermediary, as an enabler of witnessing. 
Too much is left in the data centers, in the workings of algorithms, in the materialities and relationalities of the network, in the bodies that can never be presented as testimony to the citizenry of the US, the UK, Australia and elsewhere because the countries in which they were killed and wounded are too war-torn. So to close, three propositions. First, provocations I guess they should be. First, the capacity to bear witness to war has been strained to breaking by the pervasive presence of sensing, computing, visualising and interfacing technologies that have sought to transform the world into data. Second, witnessing drone warfare demands recognition of non-human entities and processes as agents that matter with the capacity for testimony and meaning making. Third, data infrastructures, signal networks, satellites, data centres and so on need to, be need to be addressed as agentic sites of witnessing. We need to take seriously the question of whether the algorithm can bear witness and what it might mean to have so much testimony to violent killing, waiting, accumulating on the brink of being made meaningful and yet perhaps as impossibly removed from political debate as the human witness killed to keep their silence. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Um, I'd now like to invite Simon Taylor. He will be talking about something called Backscatter. Okay, <laughs> today I'm talking about Backscatter, data holidays in the NCI. This particular image I've taken from one of hundreds of contact reports and thousand data points stored in the National Computational Infrastructure in Canberra. It was triggered as one of the largest geoscientific sonar surveys ever conducted in history in the search for missing Malaysian aeroplanes MH370, lost, presumed crash in the Indian Ocean. What you are seeing here is I'm focused on the technology of backscatter as a technology of perception. What you see here is a remotely operated vehicle in the deep sea as it surveys a feature of interest, one of 618 contact reports that was generated in searching for the plane. Backscatter as a technology perception was not only used to navigate these features and tell the drone where it was, connected to a 10 kilometre fibre optic cable that is relaying data points and images as a feature of interest back to ships on the surface, to cloud architectures through satellites, to different database storages in the ships, but also in Malaysia, China, the US, and finally stored by the Australian Transport Safety Bureau in the National Computational Infrastructure in Canberra. This disappearance of MH370 produced not only this geoscientific survey and reformation of political relations, but interacted with our surveillance practices and computational data. Indeed, it, the disappearance ruptured our notions of determinacy, locatability, feature extraction and target detection. If I connect to Mark's talk, it is an operational image. It's not only what gets lost, but what gets redoubled, what gets tripled and produces our data. This situated knowledge crosses various domains of not life, not just the deep ocean of which you are seeing here, but it echoes across layers of media, people, technology and pathology. It disrupts regimes of command, source and control. By focusing on backscatter as a technology of perception, I suggest we blur lines of sight between human embodied sensing, remote places of abstraction and reveal infrastructural conditions of possibility. Backscatter has residues in the history of imaging and technological sensing techniques, from mammogram scans, baggage checks, metal fatigue floors to the deep ocean floor. This means what we learn in one domain can easily be transferred across, especially when it's automated and involves machine learning. As Henry Bergen suggests, whether the organ of perception is a microscope, telescope, eye, camera or algorithm, it's about dividing up matter, movement or environs into points on a trajectory so they can be acted on. It's an instrument of mattering. So to dis disassemble matter and recompose it so it can be acted upon. Backscatter is an active perceptual system, therefore brings together elements elongated, reflected, compressed or reduced in order to protect project detection of a target that cannot otherwise be seen. Therefore, it can work with any of these kind of rays or waves, sound, light, x-rays, and these particular attributes in the process of recomposing a graphical image which exceeds the politics and practice of human-looking itself. This is particularly the ultrasound that's using sound and the speed of sound as it hits through different matters of the body. 
This is a baggage suitcase and it reflects off different materials. In the deep ocean floor, we have hard returns and soft returns that build up what the features of interest are. A hard return would be a rock or a piece of metal that reflects the frequencies and velocity back. A soil or sand or non-geological matter or the skin absorbs part of it and attenuates the frequency. Think about the crash of a large aircraft in the ocean. If John Durham Peters says disaster reveals the existential plight of infrastructure, then as the MH370 slammed into the ocean, it entered um, James Elkin's domain of images, but it also cut into the data face between data and interface between data and environment. MH370 collapsed into a deep water technology, a form of extreme aesthetic discovery revealing fluid natures of truths between human and technological fallibility. As uh, Susan Shupley wrote about the disaster of Deepwater Horizon, as the disastrous object disappeared from view into the murky depths, its image-making capacities and modes of image capture began to multiply across technical media and distributed platforms. But the greatest mobilization of image responders to this event was no doubt their ultrasonic capabilities and navigational sensors toward the site cast across responsibilities of human operators where anomalies got multiplied at different points. So rather than single images, each image got processed and multiplied across different things and in this way accumulated data. It's not a data of recognition, it's a data almost of misrecognition. They never found the plane but the survey that they conducted was an enormous kind of collection of surveillance. So what features and anomalies did they find? What attributes can or did they assign them? And how did this shape human-machine interactions, navigation, computational infrastructure? In the ATSTB report, they tested the various contractors that I showed above, the five ships that responded to the article. The way they did this was to make these two by two metre cross and the one by three metre cubes, and they dumped them in a thousand metres of ocean, and they sent the contractors out there to find them. Experts in the field of automatic target recognition using sophisticated software algorithms, analyzed the data. However, this, the existing contacts were flagged by the process, but this work and process continues now as technology evolves. The domain of images is the computational infrastructure, not the ocean anymore. Um, as Louise Armour suggests, to extract something from features in a data environment is to anticipate and act. It is a critical computational problem for deep machine learning. Across diverse domains, the capacity to recognize three-dimensional forms of an object and to decide on the optimum action is a challenge that animates computer science. And indeed, the failure to recognize multi-dimensional mobile forms, such as human organs, vehicles, features of interest in the deep ocean floor or facial features, being a common feature of many high-profile mistakes and accidents by machine learners. Basically, in this, the anomalies, as I suggested, navigate, but they also were done in real time. It became a multimedia event, a sensory scramble, as Stefan Heimlich claims, and a complex layering of corporeal or human machine disorientation. The machine accidents mounted into data holidays. As sonar data degraded due to increased motion of this 10-kilometer sway of the deep tote beetle, in the ATSB report, five types of data holidays were refracted throughout the data. Terrain avoidance, equipment failure, off track. These became stored in this backscatter back contact report in the National Computational Infrastructure, and a line of flight is created where the cartographic is replaced by the taxonomic. This indeed is a ghosted image where individual targets could be the ghost in the original contact, question mark. Finally, in November 2019, the Australian National Computational Infrastructure is being upgraded for the first time. I will visit this as part of, um, to extend my research. But I'd like to suggest and end as my provocation. What is at stake in this technical assemblage moves beyond the concept, concept of having situated human machine re reconfigurations, but completely recasts the relational ontology of how arrangements produce data and forms of ag agency. This mutual constitution is not simply from action plans, directive and salient features of location, but as an inscription of our pathology, our data holidays, and ever-changing field of distributed cognition movement. I will end on what they actually did find instead of the plane, and I will use a poetic account from political geographer Jessica Lehman to 
illustrate my point. The satellites couldn't see below the waves, so we sent the robots. We thought they were embassies, but the robots lived their own lives down below. The currents turned and tumbled them. Information leaked out and the numbers grew fuzzy. Some spoke of wrecks, spoke of battles, of metals flung slow and across vast bases. What wasn't metal drifted, others told of bodies of the beginning of capitalism. And in the case of MH370, of leaky oil drums, twines of cables, ghosted images, and as the robot casts a piece of coal that was found in a 1912 Portuguese ship carrying iron coal that was scattered across the ocean floor, it shows us a world ultimately entangled in our limits as an anthropology of planetary pathology. Thank you kindly. Thank you, Simon. Um, so while we're setting up, our next uh, speaker will be um, Tom <coughs> Sear, who comes from us from UNSW in Canberra. And he'll be talking about cyber wars, data, and the state. Cool. So what follows is a, is a fictional, is a speculative fictional data story. Uh, with reference and apologies to Rob McLaughlin, uh, James Mortensen, uh, John Statursky, August Cole, uh, P.W. Singer, Mackenzie Walk, and uh, Ben Bratton. So like any, any parable, this story also may verge on being simplistic, culturally cliched for the purpose of this illustration. So October 1, 2020, Western Sydney, Australia. A 10-year-old Australian, Chloe Ying Chow, is playing Fortnite. Eliminated, exasperated, she posts an ironic emote parody on TikTok. Her mother turns from her own PC and suggests in Mandarin Cantonese combination to Chloe her social time is up, time for homework. Briefly distracted, Chloe's mum takes a photo of her daughter and shares it to a chat group in the Chinese owned social media app WeChat. On the same day, a 20 year old junior engineer, Shang Kairan from Shenzhen, sits down to tea with a local leader from a telecom company, China Unicorn. Shang is a junior city official from the Industry and Information Technology Bureau, which has just overseen the installation of a total of 45,000 5G base stations in Shenzhen to achieving the full 5G network coverage as their goal was by October 2020. So flash forward to year 2035. Chloe has just crossed over into Shenzhen with the help of the Hong Kong Republican Army. A minor climate change weather event has helped Chloe slip in undetected via the port. Her arrival coincides with a spiral of geopolitical escalation. The unexpected death of Chairman Xi Jinping in 2033 led to a power struggle in the CCP. US President Ivanka Trump continues to affirm <laughs> a policy of minimal intervention, but elates readiness to a state just below outright declaration of war. So over the previous seven years, the critical infrastructure of energy and logistical organisations required enhanced physical and digital defence from both nation-state adversaries and environmental protesters alike. Information increasingly became central to production, the functions of civic identity and service delivery. A new breed of corporate worries emerged as a cyber military services private industry to defend the ICT infrastructure and data, and as, as a civil military relations blurred investment in the infrastructure of satellites uh, in space and even the law of war began to change. In fact, legislation in the EU in 2028 led to the US Congress and the UN to reconsider the nature of sovereignty itself. The flow-on effects of all these events has resulted in an escalation of the previously grey zone digital integrations of Taiwan into mainland political systems and a destabilisation across the Indo-Pacific. A series of rolling multi-vector, multi-wave, preemptive and sustained cyber campaigns across the globe's global cities ensues. In response, former state official and tech entrepreneur, now regional warlord, Liu Yongfu, has deployed a, deployed a swarm of robot devices to control the city of Shenzhen. Whether this is to benefit China or himself in an internecine CCP conflict is not clear. But the city is considered to be the base for many global cyberstorm events in other parts of the planet. This system is dependent upon the now aging 5G network backbone that engineer Xiao Xiang Kairan, who we spoke about earlier, now has control of as the chief technological official in the city. The attacks also require the use of submarine cables near where Chloe has come ashore and their sabotage is one of the reasons she is even there. So Chloe is now a cyber mercenary 
commanding a four-person soft team and a small swarm of air and water deployable sensor and offensive-capable automated UAVs or drones. As the most senior enabled communications and, and IoT engineer and an official, Chloe is looking to locate and capture Xiang Kairan, whose own biometrics are critical to the sequencing of a proposed cyber typhoon event that she is spearheading and which is designed to create friction in the hub of China's information economy and military power. So in the early to mid-2020s, cyber so China's cybersecurity was known in intelligence circles to actually be exceptionally weak. This enabled a beachhead, a foothold for a complex network of well-supported AIs to analyse, store and predict. So Chloe is using more than nine years of surveillance data, especially the IoT feeds themselves on Shang, that have been part of the monitoring campaign to target him live in 2035. But Chloe has a more immediate problem, her own ability to see. In the shift from marine to literal city, Chloe's face mask, face mask fogs up. Forced to remove her face mask, she curses and makes a joke about the Australian-made product. And Prime Minister Han Yuen's uh, glorious 2028 pronouncement that Lithgow would be Australia's Silicon Valley meets Shenzhen. Despite the electronic camouflage, facial exposure triggers Shenzhen's AI facial recognition surveillance tech. The picture uploaded by her mother onto WeChat and the walking gate from TikTok way back in 2020, combined with five years of data from her, her obsession with playing Fortnite when she was younger, with the data extracted from the Chinese-owned data centres of these companies to predict her next tactical move. Her own sensor swarm picks up the compromise and provides an alternative to Chloe. Instantly, her and her, and her team swing into plan B. Chloe's team have access to the phone of Xiang Kairan's wife and the phone of a mid-level commander, a mid-level military intelligence commander who is close to the regional warlord. So a message is inserted on Xiang's wife's uh, phone, which suggests that Xiang is collaborating with the Taiwanese separatist movement and the Hong Kong Republican Army. Simultaneously, a message, which appears to be from the warlord himself, is planted on the mid-level commander's phone, suggesting that he check Xiang's wife's phone as, as Xiang is a traitor. So data, in this sense, has become a pure weapon. The kill chain of the automated drone which surveils the city is triggered, and when 15 minutes later, Chinese special forces raid the office of Xiang's wife, they download the data of her phone, and it's connected to the drone, and so the tech Tech billionaire's warlord's drone effectively eliminates Xiang immediately. Chloe's team compromised to fight a strategic retreat to an emergency rendezvous with an underwater UAV controlled from a distant nuclear submarine. Two of her team are killed in that escape to the UAV. So I tell this story uh, to reveal some key characteristics of our present data world and their potential impacts on the future. One, in 2020, as geographic borders are more complex, nation states, in combination with private tech companies, are reframing borders with sovereign data. States are becoming like platforms, platforms are becoming like states. Geography is collapsing as data frames the new borders of data infrastructure. Two, data as, as weapon or as a role in complex information operations has an ambiguous at best relation to the law of armed conflict and the cyber talent manuals we use. So the law of armed conflict is gonna be transformed in the next 10 years or 10 to 15 years. Three, how data is collected in the infrastructures of today and refined in forms of targeting will affect the conflicts as far out as 2035. So what you're doing now will be captured and analysed by AI systems and used then. So what do you see in this story? I look forward to discussing the implications of data or data for global conflict with you guys. Thank you. So we have our sixth and final speaker, uh, Vanessa Page, who is a colleague of ours from the University of Sydney. Um, Hello, the future is absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, so I'm here to talk about community as a new data paradigm. Um, I'm a newly minted PhD candidate um, uh, studying AI and online communities. Um, 
So in our age of compute, uh, computational and human entanglement, our identities and interactions are both publicly performed and opaquely commoditized. Platform architectures leverage this data to affect our social realities via algorithmic filter bubbles, behavioral engineering, and the awarding or withdrawing of status and privilege. Today, I'd like to explore and provoke around the idea of the inverse, how our social realities could perhaps affect data, creating resistant and contestant forms of power and value. Specifically, I want to focus on community as a concretized data infrastructure. I arrive at this idea as someone who has professionally managed online communities for about two decades, watching participants across diverse subject matters grapple with their relationship to data um, within their communities. Uh, try mollifying uh, the super users of a 10-year-old travel forum whose post counts have been completely wiped out due to a software update. Um, they have feelings about how that data is being harvested, ingested, sorted, categorised and sold onward to a daisy chain of operators for applications in context that didn't even exist when that data was spawned. I believe a community data paradigm may help contest these context collisions and power imbalances of our current data topology. Researching Indigenous knowledge in the internet era, uh, scholar Jennifer Wemmerguans has advanced the concept of digital bundles, computational configurations that encode digital, uh, sorry, encode Indigenous cultural protocols. These help those communities preserve knowledge, rituals, symbology, histories and perspectives, while conferring communal agency in the application of those areas. I would like to respectfully explore an augmentation of this idea to apply to intentional online digital communities. For this, I'm drawing on Macmillan and Chavis's sense of community framework, widely used by online community professionals in practice. That is a photo of me in 1993 in uh, the X-Files Anonymous community. Um, we're having a meetup in LA. <laughs> Can a data infrastructure scaffold this operational DNA of intentional online community? Could we computationally encode community protocols for a community of marathon runners or cancer survivors? Right now, we think about data sovereignty in two main ways, geopolitical information flow and the decolonization of indigenous identity and culture. Could we add intentional community to that mix? An analog might be community-owned energy microgrids. Could an online community untether from the platform grids uh, using tools to extract analyze, apply and archive its own data from its interactions and activities. Envision a community manager and members accessing that data to deepen trust and empathy, aggregating and analyzing it to produce insights that meet member needs or create informational assets that facilitate influence both within the community and the wider world. This proposition also borrows from open data principles However, these typically grant a community access to centralised data stores rather than uh, community-owned and maintained data sets that are free to interface with other data sets. So what might a community, infrastructure, uh, community data infrastructure do? Our online communities tell stories about themselves constantly to their members and to the world around them. How a community manages its collective data footprint might be part of that story, an expression of community ontology. Online community governance can regulate data protocols alongside social and cultural norms. For example, a pseudonymous mental health forum could open that, their data sets to research projects they deem aligned to their community values and goals while resisting access to a business or institution they feel is incompatible. A gaming community might permit the ingestion of data about a game to its creator for product enhancement, but may draw the line at unrelated behavioural tracking. Individual informed consent to data extraction is broken. Engaging in daily life, we regularly grant perpetual access to not just our personal data, but the data of our contacts, individuals who did not consent, typically, to that access. Context has been poached under the framing of usership and consumership. This data then goes on to train machine learning in everything from advertising to warfare. Its power lies in its aggregate. So I think it's a worthy line of inquiry to interrogate the shape and form of that aggregate. A community data bundle could return a collective and contextual dimension to this consent conversation.
A digitally localised infrastructure could empower intentional online communities to network their data sets around shared purpose and opportunity via mechanisms like APIs. Communities would determine the criteria around which their data sets are accessed and mobilised. Tim Berners-Lee's new internet, Inrupt, contains personal online data stores. What about a COD, a COD, a community-owned data store? Imagine an internet of community data constitutions that bridge the gap between platforms and individuals. Community as data harvester, curator, archivist and controller, with these actions forming part of community life. Of course, a communal data apparatus does introduce new frictions. Communities forge around corrosive ideas. Here, data may be a carrier for harm. Online communities that can be breached by toxic actors, such as disc disgruntled former members, which may compromise the integrity of that infrastructure. Participants might need new literacies to maintain these village data stores. They may tire in the role of data controller, impacting their participation in community life. And others may tr struggle with the trade-off in personal convenience produced by ceding power to the collective. Mechanisms would need to allow for member comings and goings and the process of community retirement, during which communities already run into platform tensions, I've lived through many of them, around data migration, download and preservation. Zainab Tufeki invites us to interrogate computational politics via data. Here I see community infrastructure as a way of centering the us in this quote here. Adopting existing social infrastructure within an online community as a data model may impugn power asymmetries. It can challenge the opacity of surveillance and the normalisation of commercially prioritised efficiencies in datafication. It can challenge consent engineering and enable new cultural and value production. It shifts data harvesting, ingestion and value from the invisible to legible, returning power to collectives that are often vulnerable um, in, uh, as described by Eubanks's automated inequality. I'm intrigued by a future of intraoperable data villages the infrastructural engines behind them, and how this ecosystem may support both community function and address critical inequities. And I hope I may have intrigued you as well. Thank you. That was Holly Cruz, Jonathan Hutchison, Tom Sear, Simon Taylor, Vanessa Paik, and me, Michael Richardson, with six provocations on data infrastructures from the Data Futures Symposium at UNSW. In the next episode, we'll turn to the theme of data experiences, hosted by Edgar Gomez-Cruz from the Media Futures Hub. Thanks for listening.